from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. This week on the program, we're talking about the discovery of an essential element for life on a meteorite, how pressure impacts the state of metals that we think we know quite well, using AI for archaeology, vampire bat buddies, and the relationship between honeybees and power lines. It's Undisciplined's Science News Roundup, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Every few weeks on this program, we gather together a motley group of scientists and science enthusiasts to talk about some of the most interesting and important stories in the world of science, research, and exploration from the past month. And in true undisciplined fashion, we do this with guests from vastly different backgrounds. Joining us on the line today is a veteran of the program. She first joined us to talk about her team's work to genetically engineer a mouse that is dependent on niacin in the same way as humans, and she became one of our favorite Roundup guests from Utah State University. It's Morella Meyerfica. Hey, Morella, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. And also with us on the line from Washington State University, where she is a professor of anthropology, is Shannon Tushingham. She first joined us for an episode in which we paired her with an expert on cryptocurrencies. That resulted in a fascinating discussion, and we are really excited to have her back on the program. Shannon, thanks for coming back. So happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Matt. And with us in studio for the first time ever on this program and making what I understand is her public radio debut is Netta Lotfizade. She studies physics and astronomy at the University of Utah, where she was part of a team that recently reported a successful experiment to measure the energy it takes to create a crystal made of nothing more than electrons. Netta, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for the invitation. So we've got a physicist, we've got an anthropologist, and we've got a geneticist all together at this fun little public radio dinner party. So naturally, we should talk about meteorites. A team of researchers writing for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this month told the world that they had discovered the naturally occurring simple sugar known as ribose inside of a meteor. And that's That's a pretty important finding because while we have discovered quite a few organic molecules in space before, we haven't yet found that one, which is vital to the structure of RNA. Friends, we're still a long ways off from understanding the origins of life on Earth, but this is a really fascinating discovery that will continue to help inform the line of thinking that suggests that some, if not all, of the essentials for life on Earth came from somewhere else rather than developing here. What did learning about this discovery make you think? You know, I'm a geneticist, so I'm interested in those biopolymers that make up all our living cells, and just the idea that the first RNA molecules might have originated outside us was interesting because we need RNA to catalyze all biochemical reactions that we need for basically everything. I thought it was pretty cool that the idea that those originally probably were transported from outside to the Earth, because it could also mean that those substances were also transported to other primitive planets, so who knows if other places have developed similar life forms. The first thing that came to my mind was that so if that's the origin of the RNA in our planet, probably there's life in out of a space that we are not aware of, and that's really interesting. I want 
wonder if we're going to find more complex molecules or if they, they are going to find more complex molecules in the future because I think they have shown earlier that they could find like more simple structures like ammonia and methanol. Now ribose and deoxyribose are a little more complex. So I'm wondering if there might be even more complex structures in there that we are just not able to pick up at this point with our technology. So we might even learn more in the future. One of the things that is really interesting to me is that it's not like these are the first meteorites we've ever found and we're just getting our hands on these rocks. These are things that have been part of our world for a very long time, that we've known about for a very long time. But we just now are coming around to having the technology that allows us to extract information from them It just gives me such an appreciation for the state of technology that we have right now and what we can do today that we couldn't have done in in many scientific fields, like just a couple of decades earlier. And I'm wondering if, you know, what we learn from these rocks a decade from now or two decades from now is going to be even more startling. As an archaeologist that engages sometimes in sort of residue analysis and gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. I, I partner with chemists who, who do this kind of work. Where we're looking at residues that are left in artifacts, you know, it, it blows our mind if they're maybe 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 years old. And just thinking about how far the technology has come in recognizing substances and artifacts that are only as old as how long people have been around on Earth. And then comparing it to this technology and what they've done is just, it, it's My mind is blown. (laughs) Let's continue this conversation by turning to the subject of artificial intelligence. On one of our early programs, one of our guests was Anna Cohen, who uses pulsed lasers to map ancient cities. Archaeology may still be associated with the act of digging, but the reality today is that it's a highly technical field. And no time has that been more clear to me than when I read that scientists are using artificial intelligence now to scour satellite and drone photos and By using this technology, they've discovered the traces of ancient geoglyphs. These are really large drawings, some of them more than a half a mile across, etched into the ground in southern Peru. When you look at the image that the AI was studying, the one where where it found one of these images, it's really hard, at least it was for me, really hard to see anything at all. And I could have looked at that image for a month and not seeing the design that the AI pulled out of it. But man, like it identified, sure enough, one of these geoglyphs. First of all, like how did this study strike you? This is so exciting and just so cool. I mean, I loved looking at all of the different glyphs that they found. They found um, 142 new geoglyphs. Some of them are like super cute. They also have, um, you know, snakes and monkeys and all kinds of different things. And I just, I I mean, the human aspect I found so striking. And what's so exciting about this kind of work is that there are so many discoveries that are literally out there on the surface that we haven't done until now. And it's just wonderful that they've been able to develop this technology to this degree. I I think it was sort of a, a combination of wonder and uh, cool factor. And of course, I'm an archaeologist, so I love this kind of stuff. I was fascinated by the fact that with 
this new technology, they already found hundreds more of those geoglyphs. And I think there's still a little bit of a mystery about what what they mean, though, why they were created in the first place. So my hope is that the more of those we find, that we can make some sense of that. Something that I also liked was that now they have a humanoid figures because I think most of the others usually were some animals. As a biologist, if it only tells me that those ancient people in Peru, they saw humans as being part of the fauna that's out there, they are one of those animals that's already a cool message for me, in addition to the technology being really spectacular. The researchers developed an algorithm to essentially let AI loose on the task of searching. This is becoming a theme in the development of AI, which I think a lot of people think of in terms of decision-making, but AI turns out to be quite good at looking for things. Um, How is this playing into your individual field? How how is AI being used? In the genetics field, AI is going to be a major player in the future when it gets to the point where we need to make sense of those huge data sets that we are developing right now with the modern genomics technology. Oftentimes, as a researcher, we run into a dead end where we generate so much data, but we need the computing power to make sense of it. And I think artificial intelligence is going to be a major key in the future to make more sense of all those genomics data and gene expression data that we don't have um, the mental capacity to look at all those things at one point. This really reminds me of something that I saw written once about CRISPR technology, which is that technology has made it possible to do something that once was a lifetime of study and compacted into what is now oftentimes like an undergraduate research project that can be done in a semester. When that happens, you guys, will that make you feel, I mean, will you feel good about the state of technology or will you feel bad about the time that you wasted when the technology was earlier in state? I'll definitely feel good. At least someone else won't waste their life, like seven years of their life in the lab or processing data. I think I think if we can use AI to kind of outsource tedious, repetitive work and use our own brains to focus on creative acts, I would certainly welcome that a lot. I think that would be really nice. I have to mention in archaeology, too, just because this is an archaeological story, but um, just AI is becoming something that you know we're, we all are really getting engaged with, especially LiDAR technology. And you see graduate students incorporating it in their work. It's pretty exciting. I think people are trying to push the boundaries. The Nazca lines are a spectacular application of AI. But people are using this in sort of day-to-day archaeology when they're looking for things like pit house villages that are actually quite difficult to see. We're starting to get really good at that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that archaeologists are definitely pushing the boundaries of AI quite a bit. In archaeology in particular, Shannon, does it take a little bit of the, um, I don't like the romance away from it? We, you know, when we close our eyes and we picture an archaeologist, and maybe this is unfair, but, you know, you see somebody like out digging and getting their hands dirty and 
dodging poison arrows. <laughs> like <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, that's the sort of Indiana Jones mystique of archaeology. And, you know, I actually, I love Indiana Jones, but there's so many different paths uh, now we're learning, especially with these new technologies, you know, we're, we're making discoveries in museums all the time. We're using technology to discover um, new substances that were never recognized before um, on, on archaeological materials. Uh, I think you had Andrew Gilreath Brown on here um, a few months ago that he was talking about that tattoo um, implement that had been sitting in on a museum shelf for, you know, 50 years. It hadn't been discovered until last year. There's just all kinds of things that are going on that are outside of the sort of stereotypical excavation. But don't get me wrong, I like to excavate and get dirty, for sure. The scientists involved in this study turned the AI algorithm toward the task of you know, studying former geoglyphs and then using those images to identify in satellite images other geoglyphs that hadn't been discovered yet. And, you know, that that does remind me of, of the study that Andrew did where he was basically going through this box of old stuff that had already been looked at many, many times over many, many years. And he just saw it with new eyes and, and a little bit of context and recognized that it was a tattooing tool. And I just, I wonder what we could do if we could just spread out all of the artifacts that are in these boxes and let an AI go at them and and what connections they might make and build and, and what clues they might give us. Yeah, it was trying to figure out ways of streamlining these repetitive tasks. And, and when you go through bags and bags of artifacts, it can be quite repetitive. And, you know, if you if you had a way of, of looking at things differently, that, that would actually help quite a bit. I also would mention, too, that, you know, in all of these cases, we have to go, human beings have to go and ground truth AI or, or all of the archaeological cases that I know of. So even with, with this study, you know, they had to go out on and, and ensure that these were, in fact, um, the real deal. And many times we get sort of data that suggests that something is there, you know, like a mound, uh, something that looks like a mound. Um, and then archaeologists will go out and test that. They, they might do a little digging and they determined that, oh, well, it was just sort of a, you know, a, a septic tank or something like that. Um, so it, it's that combination of human beings and AI that can be powerful. Let's shift now to a discussion about bats and a story that is... Well, it's really pretty heartwarming. This new study suggests that when captive bats form social bonds, those bonds persist even after the bats are released into the wild. Um, Guys, how did this story strike you? To me, at some point, I had like seven cats when I was in high school. We had a big basement, so I was keeping those cats lying around. So I could tell that... Obviously, in animals, friendship has meaning as well. But I was wondering if these bats, they feed each other in, in return for asking for a favor later when they don't get fit themselves. It's from na- like their nature to survive or it's just coming from the fr- friendship. Because it was saying that when they were captive, the mother and children, after they were released in the wild, they weren't going together. They were like the bond wasn't there anymore but in nature mother and 
the children are in the bad, they stay together for a long time. There is a bond between them. So I was wondering if it was just this friendship was coming to survive or it was actually the friendship like in our humans. But I couldn't find anywhere in the research. Netta mentioned this bat feeding thing. And just to dive into this really quick, one sign of, you know, what we can kind of call bat friendship is that when a vampire bat isn't able to find an animal to prey upon by chomping down and drinking its blood, as vampire bats are wont to do, another bat will regurgitate part of its last meal and feed its buddy and it turns out that the bats that do this with one another in captivity stick close to one another when they're released into the wild. I'm always surprised when I read those studies that there is this surprise at something that in humans you would consider normal. And it always, to me, it always boils down to humans wanting to be so different than animals when we really are just one species of animals. So I thought it was a great study. And what I like so much about it is that, that now finally there is more growing evidence that other animals can have emotions and feelings like humans too. And for me, always the question was, why not? Why cannot animals have friendships? It serves humans well, and I think to assume friendship in humans is something completely altruistic probably would be, I don't know, a little bit against the fact that also humans are social creatures that have benefits from from friendships and social behavior in general. So if humans have benefits when they have friendships, why can't animals that benefit from each other and live socially, why can't they have something that for them feels like friendship feels for us? This tendency on the part of scientists, I think, to really push against anthropomorphization. But I think, Morella, what I'm hearing you say is that maybe this isn't anthropomorphization. Maybe this is just recognition of a common shared trait that isn't a human trait, that is a, a trait in nature um, that we just haven't really been smart enough to recognize in many, many other species before. Yeah, that, that's what I what I think. I I think you know the the difference between humans and animals from an evolutionary point isn't that long ago. So why would feelings and behaviors that serve humans well? Why would they have only evolved uh, developed in humans? But why can't they be there in other species as well? Netta, you were nodding your head and laughing a little. What are you thinking? Yeah, I was thinking that sometimes back I heard that scientists found that researchers found that um, animals also have character. Uh, I was like, yeah, obviously they have. I think it's obvious for those especially who have pets. That's why those researchers, when they find it out, it's really interesting for them. But someone who has spent some time with animals, it's so obvious for them. That's why <laughs> not to say that this research is not interesting, but if you spend some time with animals, these things become really obvious to you. Yeah, they have friends. They, they, the friendship has meaning between them. They have different characters and this is stuff. <laughs> and I think this kind of study that's, you know, they're, they're looking at not just any animal. It's interesting that it's so important that a study like this is coming out and, and they're focused on um, an animal, a, a species that is so often demonized, 
vampire bats, like blood-sucking <laughs> uh, uh, vampire bats that, um, you know, a lot of people, maybe these sort of traits, social bonds, sharing, um, and, and that sort of thing are not, uh, don't immediately come to mind when you look at these creatures. Mm-hmm. So that, that was what was very striking to me about this, um, this piece. In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news has caught your eye this month or you think is not getting quite enough attention. Morella, do you want to start? I found something that I thought was, for some reason, I thought it was kind of intuitive to me, but now that I've, I saw a study on it, I thought it was pretty interesting, especially with the holidays coming up. It was a, a study published uh, this month in the journal Cell, and it pointed out that Full intestines and not full stomachs actually might be our signal to help us stop eating. I thought it was really cool because it might make a point at why it is important to eat slowly so you don't overfill your stomach because really something has to be in the intestine to tell tell your brain to stop eating. And also, I thought it was a good point why it's probably good to have some fibers in your diet so that might keep you satisfied longer. And, you know, considering our ongoing obesity crisis, I thought this was pretty interesting. This is good information to have as we approach the holidays. Shannon, what do you got for us? Um, I'd just like to highlight this discovery of about 14 mammoth skeletons excavated near Mexico City. There was an announcement this month by Mexico's National Institute of anthropology and history, and um, they're studying these skeletons uh, that are about 15,000 years old, and they've found what they're calling the first human-made traps to capture these megafauna, which is really cool. So this is really going to highlight how people were hunting mammoths in the deep past in, in the Americas. And then the other study that I wanted to just mention was a paper called Gendered Places and Depositional Histories, Reconstructing a Menstrual Lodge in the Interior Northwest. And uh, this was a study that was published by Molly Carney and colleagues. And it's the first archaeological recognition of a menstrual lodge in anywhere in the Northwest. And this uh, team of archaeologists used uh, really a meticulous consideration of multiple lines of evidence. So they looked at excavated data, geoarchaeology, paleoethnobotanical data, ethnohistoric data to develop their arguments. And it's just a very cool study that pushing the boundaries of our knowledge about households in uh, the Americas. And Netta. I saw a new study. It was published in Physical Review Letter and highlighted by Physics Magazine that it was a collaboration with Harvard University. They studied carbon nanotube on graphene and they showed that graphene can work as a waveguide. And it made me think that when we, for example, during our first topic, we were talking about the technology with the development of new technology we can study new things or maybe we should go back and check the things that we already studied before. It's, for example, for nano carbon nanotubes, if that's the case, it was a hot topic 10 years ago, but people don't study it anymore. But whenever research comes out on carbon nanotube, they show plenty new things that because of the new technology and new equipment, the 
people are able to grow new materials, better quality, even carbon nanotubes. So we should probably go back and study those again and get interesting data, which can give us new results, same as the research that was published this week. What's old is new again. Netta Latfizadeh, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. And Shannon Touchingham, thank you. Thank you so much. And Marilla Meyerfika, thanks for joining us again. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. And if you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's episode from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our associate producer is Miadora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.